Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Continues to move up. The backwardation is considerable. You go to sell a barrel three years from now, you get sixty-three or four. Sell a barrel now, and you're you know you're in the high seventies. So that's just a feature of the market. Natural gas, which had the near month had a tough fourth quarter, lost a buck and a half or something because of the warm weather. But the 22 and 23 and 24 prices held in pretty well, so it's just the backwardation became less. I did some work last weekend on how to think about future pricing. The work was really the case for 350 gas, and there's still some glitches in it. When it when it gets uh, the glitches get fixed, I'll have Vivian ship it to Mike, and uh, if anyone wants a copy of it, you can. You can get it from Mike. The um, case is pretty good. The demand in natural gas consumption is almost all LNG. Everything else is very flat. I mean, we LNG demand in the fourth quarter was 13 Bs, which is you know up significantly, and it will increase, but only as that's capacity only as additional LNG capacity is built, and it takes a lot of money in a couple of years to add LNG capacity. But over the next couple of years, between another train at Sabine Pass for Chenier, another train at Corpus Christi for Chenier, uh, Venture Global, which is another Louisiana producer, will be coming on. You know, I, I have 23 LNG all the way up to 16 Bs a day, and that's one of the things I... I want to get a little more data on before I have this circulated too widely. Residential commercial varies all over the place. I mean, it it averages like about 30 bees a day. But, you know, in shoulder months when there isn't a lot of heat or a lot of cold temperature, it can be as low as 17 or 18. And days like yesterday when it's very cold or today, it can be in you know, and it's cold all over, it, it can be as high as, you know, 45 or something. So there's a lot of variability, but the average is around 30. Industrial use is, is pretty flat around the high 20s. And then, uh, so it's really LNG versus gas supply. And the question is, you know, how much more gas will be produced in the, the big basins, Marcellus, Hainesville? And then, of course, associated gas from the Permian. So I think there's a pretty good case for hanging on to 350 run going back. I mean, the average price in 2020 was 220 or something. I, I really don't see that. I can't rule it out, but I think the probability of that recurring is a bit, you know, I hope on the low side. As far as interest rates and impact on stock prices, all you hear is, how many increases? You know, when when is the increases in the Fed funds rate going to start? How many will there be? When people talk about three increases, they're talking about, I guess, starting in March and having an increase each quarter. 
think, which is much more significant and certainly came out in in uh, Powell's testimony yesterday in front of the Senate Finance Committee on his, his uh, renomination to be continued to have another term as chairman of the Federal Reserve. The reduction of the balance sheet from $9 trillion back to four, which is where it was before the pandemic started, is much more of an issue, I think. And um, one of the points he made in his testimony yesterday is that as compared to the last time they started to have it run off, it's much shorter paper. Uh, they, they didn't, as part of responding to the pandemic, they didn't try to buy long bonds. They, you know, I think what he was saying is the average maturity is like four years, five years. So I think what he was forecasting uh, is that when they decide to stop uh, reinvesting the interest coupons and the maturities, it'll go from, you know, where you might have thought the nine, going from nine down to four would be at about a trillion a year. It might be a trillion and a half or two trillion a year because of the short maturities. Now, they might because they don't want to, you know, have the capital markets be too impacted by this. They might they will reinvest half of the maturity, you know, half of the money coming in with maturity initially rather than say, we're just going you know, to let the whole thing run off. Say, we're going to go from $9 trillion to $4 trillion in, uh, you know, in, you know, three years or something. They do have a pretty big inflation rate. I think it was 6% last month and uh, the average, average forecast is 7%. So they're certainly not talking about inflation being transitory. But just for the moment, I, I don't really know about grains and food stuff. I certainly have a lot of experience with home heating oil bills. Because, I mean, home bills, heating bills because of natural gas or or uh, heating oil or, or the price of oil. Just an interesting point is that natural gas prices have been pretty high. I mean, I'm talking about 350 for the second half of the year. You know, there's a lot of, you know, the pump monthless trading in the fours. So uh, as it affects people's heating oil bills, you know, the, the second half of 21 was pretty high. Also, as price of oil moved up and gasoline, when we get to this time next year, the comparison will be against fairly high levels. And I don't think it's likely that oil will move up enough so that gasoline will be significantly more expensive in December and January next year as compared to December and January this year. And I would say the same thing is true for utilities passing the cost of natural gas through either in in what they charge, you know, the in terms of monthly bills to heat your home or what they are able to recover with their power rates. So at least the for the energy side, I can see a set of circumstances where they're contributing to the six or seven percent inflation. But when we get out a year from now, you know, I think that number is more likely to be quite a lot lower, two or three percent. Just don't have the experience to comment on food stuff, uh, you know, uh, the price of hamburger or, or you know, or the price of a quart of milk or whatnot. However. Part of the uh, consumer price index is is cars, 
Uh, and there, because I'm a long-term CarMax stockholder, uh, there's no question that the cost of used cars moved up a lot. You can see it in the CarMax numbers. They basically recovered the cost, so it didn't add to their margin. They make about $2,000 a car gross margin, and that didn't go up, but they were at least able to recover their cost and pass it on. That's not likely to be the case a year from now. I mean, used car prices are likely to be lower. Why did used car prices moved up? Well, the supply chain, the computer chips, where Toyota, GM, Ford had to uh, stop making as many cars, have lines and whatnot, or defer production, but they couldn't come up with the computer chips they needed. That eventually will get solved, and new cars will be more available, and the price of used cars will be lower. Another important component of the consumer price index is rent. I think that, that, you know, again, I don't have really any expertise on housing prices or rents or whatnot, just like I don't can't tell you about hamburger or milk or whatnot. However, I do think that uh, in, in, in the real estate market, there's plenty of funding out there for real estate, and I think it will pursue opportunities. And so I can't imagine that a year from now, the cost to rent a house or rent an apartment won't be, I think at some point, it'll flatten out. So I know no one who is talking about inflation being transitory in the summer, they just want to forget that word. But just for the moment, uh, in terms of the impact on Fed behavior, I think that inflation in prices as it's figured into the consumer price index, I really do think it's likely to slow down. Just another point before we get to some stuff that Mike and I want to cover on kind of the, you know, the merger of technology and energy, uh, which we promised to do last week and we'll get to it. I just want to talk for a bit about China. Um, We follow China obviously because it's very important for oil demand, very important for met coal pricing. I mean, met coal pricing is very high, and part of it's because it's China's embargo or, or uh, won't, won't, won't permit Australian coal to come in. So, I mean, the result of that has been higher met coal pricing everywhere, which has been marvelous for our company in that field, Ramico. don't know whether that will continue. In fact, you have to assume it will moderate a bit. But... We do look at China and try to talk to people who have business there or, you know, invest there. I think that we're going to see, we can already see, and we will see more two, three, four years from now, that the Chinese effort to kind of reassert central planning over their economy, especially, I mean, remember when Alibaba had to cancel the planned IPO of their financial bank and in Hong Kong. I mean, it just kept pulling back. So Alibaba's lower, all the tech companies, Tencent's lower. I think what this reassertion of control by the Communist Party as compared to market dynamics is causing and will continue to cause a significant slowdown in Chinese economic activity. I think one of the ways they increase economic activity 
what you'd say from a political point of view is prime the pump was in real estate. And I think there was a great deal of overbuilding. Anyone who visits China says there are all these office buildings and apartment buildings with no one in there. I think the Evergrande and the other Chinese real estate developers who are unable to pay interest when due, either external uh, debts, which you know were taken on by Western investors or internal debts, they're all basically in reorg, and it's trillions of dollars. I think in total. So even though China is the second largest economy in the world, only to the U.S., I think this is a significant problem for them. And I don't know that they can or would want to come to the rescue by kind of reinflating that part of the economy. So uh, where China used to grow at seven or eight percent real terms, and we were kind of limited to two and a half or three percent, we thought, oh. They'll catch us. I think what we're going to see out two years, three years from now, significant slowdown in real GNP growth in China and some significant issues in terms of getting through kind of a reorganization of the real estate development part of the economy, which I think if you include all the steel they use and all the other equipment they use and whatnot, is probably 20, 25% of their GNP. So what impact does that have if you're holding, you know, a dozen stocks with Mike and I? But just, just any time there's a company that has some dependence on China, just keep in mind that whatever that activity is produced in terms of cash flow and whatnot, it's probably a little bit at risk in terms of maintaining that kind of cash flow. For example, Apple selling iPhones in China. So I kind of prefer Amazon, which doesn't really have a presence in China, and Alphabet, which doesn't have a presence in China. But we're not going to talk too much about that. But maybe in the next Wednesday or the Wednesday after that, we'll cover some of the impact that that might have on, on tech companies like NVIDIA. That some, some part of NVIDIA stuff gets sold in China or or Qualcomm, you know, so it, it's just something to keep an eye on. With that, I think we'd like to swing into what we started to cover last week, which is kind of the intersection of technology development and energy. And Mike has some views on that, and I think I'll just lead off with him. I have a fair amount of experience on the transition stuff, on lithium, on batteries, on Cobalt, on, uh, and I'll contribute. But why don't, why don't I turn it over to Mike and? Sure. So I, let me start by just breaking down the broad areas that I've been researching lately, and we can kind of dive into some of those and where the investments are are going into. So there's obviously the electric vehicle manufacturers. So Tesla, Rivian. Lucid Motors, and dozens others. And then there's all the traditional automotive manufacturers that are converting to electric. Within that group, I much prefer the upstarts, actually. And this is based mostly on, if you're not familiar with the book, it's called The Innovator's Dilemma. And actually, the very end of that book that was written, I believe, in the 90s, talked through what a potential evolution of the 
automo- automotive market would be. So if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend reading it. Long story short, there are a lot of structural advantages to newcomers in the market. So I think that's a really interesting area. The two things I think are most important are one, the dealer networks that the traditional automotive manufacturers are quote unquote saddled with are going to make it more difficult for them to be competitive um, or at least to keep their dealer base happy as they roll out electric vehicles. The second piece is that basically there's, there's far fewer moving parts within these electric vehicles. Um, so let's move on from there, though, to battery and energy storage. This is where a lot of the technology uh, is being pushed into making that intersection of energy and technology, if you will. Think about Tesla in the very beginning. They used essentially laptop batteries to power that first Tesla Roadster. And they have been at the forefront of improving on that small cell based design for a very long time. Um, and I think if you look at compare their cells to all of their competitors, they, they are typically smaller cells, individual cells, but they are leading in making the cost of producing those cells much lower. So that, that's lithium. So those are lithium ion cells. Uh, they are moving into a bunch of different technologies. There's some technology called LFP. There's sodium ion. There's a number of other battery technologies that are, could become mainstream even in the next couple of years. A lot of the goals involved are similar to what we discussed last week. And can you get, can you remove cobalt, for example, from the battery because of the complications in obtaining cobalt and where most of it comes from? There's a lot of investment in solid state batteries, although it's from my perspective, it seems like that may be farther away than one would hope, maybe 10 years or more. The other and probably most interesting one that I'll mention, because I think this will relate back to Hunt, uh, is sodium ion as a battery technology. My impression is that CATL, who we mentioned last week, uh, announced that they'll be releasing some sodium ion batteries. They've even produced some that have similar energy densities to current market uh, lithium ion batteries. But my impression is the technology may be better suited for infrastructure scale batteries. Yeah, that, that, I think I alluded to this last week, but it's hard to invest in lithium. There are two sources of lithium. One is rocks, and uh, that is called spongemine. I don't know where the heck that word came from. And Australia is a pretty good source of lithium from rocks, heavily dominated by Chinese entities. And then you have brine deposits, which are, there are a few in the U.S. uh, that that may work, including one one of our companies owns. But the main source of brine deposits is Argentina and Chile. The tricky part of spongebine is it's going to be higher operating costs. So when these brine deposits get developed, the operating costs are quite low. So if you look at a chart of the price of lithium, it's 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 very it varies. But there's no question with Tesla in the lead, I, I don't believe there'll be a battery in cars that isn't a lithium battery. How much cobalt they need is a real question. I mean 
Tesla and others are trying to make batteries without cobalt. And just speak to batteries for a second. I'm sure everyone's seen pictures of the factory where Tesla started making batteries. That's not a Tesla factory in Utah. That's a Panasonic factory. In the beginning, Panasonic had a significant lead. Then they were challenged by LG Chem, which is the Korean equivalent. And now the most economic from cost and most you know, most the one with the most technology is DATL, which is a Chinese company, very able. And LG Chem is trying to catch up, and Panasonic is the distant third. There are a couple of other Chinese companies, but DATL has really stolen a march on everyone. And uh, well, I think one of the reasons Tesla put a factory in China was to have access to a Chinese capability to uh, make batteries. Now, DATL will be putting a plant in Europe. They'll be putting a plant in the U.S. Uh, LG Chem is doing the same thing. So our, our particular focus on batteries is for utility scale, which theoretically you, you wouldn't need lightweight, but still the economics of batteries are larger versions or more uh, cells put together of the same batteries that are being used in cars. So maybe there'll be, you know, a great deal of venture capital money has been put into making batteries other ways. But so far, I don't see any anything that's really going to challenge the lithium battery. In terms of take up with automobiles, you know, there's Lucid. I mean, these companies have come public through SPACs or or with IPOs, they have these huge valuations. Tesla, no matter how interested you get in it, because it looks like cash flow positive, it's always got a very high valuation. How to make money investing in these things is a, is a real challenge. But I'm happy having identified as a real challenge to turn it back over to Mike. I think you kind of you hit a couple of the, the things that I also ran into is that it seems like lithium is going to be here to stay for vehicle batteries in order to maintain energy density. Lithium is a pretty important material. The sodium ion stuff is still early stages. What I've found is that the technology is moving extremely fast. What's interesting, actually, and this will tie it back to NVIDIA. So the research, a lot of this is chemistry. And chemistry uh, is sort of an interesting field in that up until very recently, chemistry was performed pretty much the same way as far as experiments go as it had been 100 years ago. Uh, only relatively recently have we started applying software and modeling to chemistry in order to come up with better ways to discover new materials or design new batteries in this case. And you're seeing a ton of that activity now. And the, the, so the pace of the development is much higher. That being said, it seems like the best gains are coming from improving on existing platforms. So if you look at the cost to manufacture um, per kilowatt hour on lithium batteries, you'll see that over time that it, it has come down dramatically and there's still plenty of opportunities for that to come down. There's lots of additional technologies that can be applied to them. 
For example, supercapacitors can be used as a buffer to help maybe reduce the, the size and or the, the load on a particular battery. Um, there's a whole host of innovations which are kind of referred to as extra cell tech, which is making vehicles more efficient in using the electricity. Because at the end of the day, these vehicle manufacturers are going to deal with um, in getting people to switch to electric vehicles. The thing about today, when you buy an internal combustion car, it's all about horsepower. It's going to be all about range when it comes to electric vehicles because an electric vehicle is plenty fast. So it's going to be all about range and what, how much range you can squeeze out of it. So I, I expect to see more incremental gains on that front. The battery technologies, again, as Hunt said, CATL seems to be winning. Tesla is an interesting case because they have relationships with every battery manufacturer. And that's reasonably because they need to be able to buy from everyone in order to meet their demand. This will likely change over time as more capacity comes online. Yeah, we've got about two minutes left, and I haven't rehearsed this with Mike, but what I'd like to try to do next week is we've talked about intersection of technology and energy. I'd like to talk about the intersection of technology and security trading. Probably saw in the paper today that Citadel, which now accounts for 30, 35% of all the stock trading exchange and non-exchange in, in this country. And they just took an investment from an outsider, two firms. One was Sequoia, which is really the most prominent venture firm. And so they're planning to go public. One of the perceptions I have is just that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't act on this, but I think that such a large amount of the funds being committed to equities or being withdrawn from the market are in ETFs that I think some uh, additional amount of the trading is based on algorithms. And the algorithms could be kind of across asset categories. For example, this idea that the 10-year bond goes up from let's say 170 to 174, and you see the impact in there, you know, it seems to be a relationship between that going up and the NASDAQ uh, ETFs. I think this may be people setting up positions, quants as they're called. There's an article in the Financial Times this morning say, saying that the quants who had have had a, a difficult couple of years meeting, you know, exceeding or even getting up to what you could have made an index fund actually had a very good beginning to uh, the very good first two weeks in 22. I think that some amount of the activity we see, and especially in large caps, because if you look at Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, these things are get to be pretty large parts of these indexes. I think that if there's a bunch of selling pressure, say in Microsoft this afternoon, it's more likely to be one of these positions than it is to be someone deciding that, hey, I want to sell my Microsoft or I want to sell Microsoft and buy 
something else. I, I've decided I, I, I want to sell Microsoft by Google. I, I think that particular part of the uh, equity markets is a diminishing percentage all the time. I think it would be interesting to focus on this, especially early in the year, when you do see this volatility or, uh, or some kind of correlation between how some bond instrument is moving and how, how stocks are moving. I'll make one other comment talking to a, a friend of mine, and they had put a fair amount of time over the holidays in dealing with very young children or, you know, not, not teenagers yet, but say nine-year-olds. And of course, Zuckerberg gets up and talks about metaverse. These people are really into that. And hopefully they're into ones that are kind of, you know, youth friendly and whatnot. But he was saying, you know, I really think I, I have no idea whether Roblox or whatever, whatever these kids are focusing on is investable. But he said the graphics and whatnot, looking over their shoulders and seeing it just made me want to own more NVIDIA because I figure to the extent that this is a uh, something that is has really lured people, not just not a, you know across all age categories. Think of all the uh, GPUs that have to be fit into these uh, server farms in order to provide this kind of capability. So I make the same comment about quant trading. I mean, you actually get people to sign up. I mean, there was a fiber line from Chicago to New York, and someone who put these fiber lines in was able to get financing for a line from Chicago to New York that was built more of a straight line, so it was a fraction of a millisecond or something quicker than the other one, just because it enabled them to execute trades faster. So uh, at the very least, uh, this is this does become a market for more sophisticated chips. So uh, maybe, maybe that's all we'll get into next week, but I do think it's an interesting topic. And with that, especially with all this infection around, if, you know, we kind of think it's going to peak in another week or two here in the Northeast, but everyone stay healthy and stay well. We'll talk next Wednesday. Take care.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 